You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I remember that even as a child, I was as nervous on opening night as the actors. I had a pretty good, albeit partial, view of the actors from my hiding place backstage. I had a better view of the audience, though I saw only those faces in the first two or three rows of seats. Depending on where my mother had positioned herself as the prompter, this was either a stage right or stage left view of the people in those first few rows of seats. I saw those faces in the audience only slightly more head-on than in profile, though the people in the audience were looking at the actors on stage. They were never looking at me. To tell you the truth, it was a kind of eavesdropping. I felt as if I were spying on the audience, or just this small segment of it. The house lights were dark, but the faces in the first couple of rows of seats were illuminated by whatever light there was on stage. Naturally, in the course of the play, the light on the people in the audience varied, though I could almost always see their faces and make out their expressions. The feeling that I was spying on these most exposed theatergoers of First Sister Vermont came from the fact that when you're in the audience in a theater and your attention is captured by the actors on stage, you never imagine that someone is watching you. But I was observing them. In their expressions, I saw everything they thought and felt. Come opening night, I knew the play by heart. After all, I'd been to most of the rehearsals. By then, I was much more interested in the audience's reaction than I was in what the actors on stage were doing. In every opening night performance, no matter which women or what kind of woman Grandpa Harry was playing, I was fascinated to observe the audience's reactions to Harry Marshall as a female. John Irving is the author of The World According to Garp, which won the National Book Award. His other books include The Hotel New Hampshire, A Prayer for Owen Meany. He won an Oscar for the screenplay adaptation of his novel, The Cider House Rules. His new book is In One Person. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you. This is a really amazing book, something that I don't think has ever been attempted yet in American literature. It's a bisexual Bildungsroman with an epic sweep. It's a coming-of-age story. It is a coming-of-age story. That's kind of familiar to me, and I think uh, to most of my readers, the choice to begin a story in the point of view of a, a young person who is about to lose his or her innocence, not only sexually, but often sexually. I seem to like beginning in that point of view of someone who's just beginning to figure out the adult world. I like the situation where the reader knows more about what's going to happen to my main character, even in some cases, in this case, uh, knows more about who my character is 
than the character himself or herself knows. Uh, when this novel begins, Billy Abbott, my bisexual male character and a first-person narrator, uh, he's just discovering himself sexually. He's just beginning to figure out that he is sexually attracted to men and women. But I think the audience, uh, uh, the reader, picks up on who Billy is and who his attractions are uh, before Billy is able to accept that or articulate that for himself. That's, I think, uh, one of the things you achieve with the remarkable voice you create in this novel. And I'd like you to just tell us, when did you first encounter or create that voice as a writer? You're sitting down and trying to write. When did that voice come to you? When did you hear that voice in your head? And when did it flow to your pen? In the case of the first-person voice, a first-person narrator in specific, uh, that is a voice I I have embraced uh, before, but I always do so reluctantly. I'm I'm more comfortable. I'm more at ease. I feel more like myself as a writer in that third-person omniscient voice, which is the narrative voice of the majority of my novels. I guess it's not a coincidence, though it's not a conscious choice, that my first-person narratives all tend to be uh, sexually taboo stories. The 158-pound marriage is about wife-swapping. The Hotel New Hampshire is about a young boy who's incestuously in love with his older sister. The first-person narrator of A Prayer for Owen Meany, Johnny Wheelwright, is called three times behind his back a non-practicing homosexual. Maybe he is. He would deny it. Uh, if he is uh, gay, he's so deeply closeted that he would never come out, uh, not even to himself. But I suspect that's who he is. I didn't mention it three times uh, by accident. Uh, I think Johnny Wheelwright arguably doesn't just love Owen Meany as a best friend. He's arguably in love with Owen Meany, though he's so repressed he would never say so. And now there's Billy, my first-person bisexual narrator. Uh, I wanted Billy to be both insecure about who he is sexually as a young man, but when he comes to terms with himself about who he is, he becomes exceedingly self-confident. He's very self-confident. The bisexual guys I've known, both of my generation and a little older, and also the younger bisexual men I've known, are supremely self-confident people. I think they have to be. I think you, the, the harder it is uh, for you to accept who you are sexually, the more of a sexual minority uh, you are made to feel uh, you are in your society, the harder it is to earn your acceptance and respect sexually, the more understandably you do have a, a chip on your shoulder um, about who you are. When you've had to struggle to be who you are sexually. Uh, 
you ought to feel a little uh, defensive and protective about it. And so Billy goes in the course of this novel uh, from being quite uh, an insecure and in-hiding figure sexually to being a very self-confident voice. And I have the advantage in this narrative of letting my reader know that you are listening to the voice of a, an older man, even though as much as half this novel describes Billy's life as an adolescent, right? So I, I kind of like that um, uh, discrepancy, I think. It's no surprise to me that the two characters in this novel who stand pretty singularly as Billy's heroes are these two transgender women, different ages and from different eras. Miss Frost, uh, the librarian in the small uh, Vermont town, an older woman whom he falls in love with when he's a teenager, and waiting for Billy, kind of like a bookend to this novel, is a young boy who believes he should have been born a girl, a young boy whom we see undergo that transformation, a transgender in progress, uh, Billy calls her, uh, to becoming a young woman, uh, someone Billy meets nearer the end of his life when he's almost 70 and whom he feels he can be of some assistance to, he can be a kind of mentor to. Why would a bisexual guy not just befriend but admire and find exceedingly brave these two transgender women? Well, I would think that it's it's pretty obvious that these characters in this novel have, in Billy's estimation, been even more marginalized, arguably even more distrusted than he is. And that's their bond. Uh, they're both inhabiting the world of a sexual minority who is occasionally distrusted or suspected by gays and straights alike. That's one of the observations that Billy makes is that um, both gays and straights do uh, distrust uh, bisexual men more than their own or, or one another. And I think uh, that gets to the heart of, of Billy's character. But I, I love the beginning of this novel because what you, the, what you create for us, in, even in this small summer rural town, is an atmosphere of acceptable sexual ambiguity. And by virtue of talking about Shakespeare and the world of the small town theater and how uh, men took on women's parts and plays, that you give us a, a perception of America that understands a little bit more than it in the world that understands a little bit more than maybe than it wants to admit. You know, I I can't make the argument um, demographically or uh, statistically that small towns in northern New England are different or in some way essentially different than small towns everywhere else in, in the United States, but because I'm grown up in small towns elsewhere in the United States, but I did grow up in a small New England town. 
And I think um, sometimes the, the presumption that small towns are conservative uh, is exactly that, a presumption. In my experience, if you came from the place, they tolerated you, whatever your eccentricity, sexual or otherwise, was, until you were perceived as Miss Frost is perceived to have gone too far, until you are perceived to have crossed a kind of ill-defined barrier. But until that moment, uh, the small towns of northern New England uh, can be uh, strangely hospitable to their own, to an outsider exhibiting... um, uh, the obvious transsexualism that Miss Frost displays? Perhaps not. But Miss Frost is one of their own. And before her transformation to becoming a woman, she was a rather successful young male in the town. And so she is tolerated, but only within reason, only within uh, the town's somewhat narrowly defined uh, definition of what tolerance is. There's an end to it. There's a stopping gap to it. Just as those people in the audience in the town amateur theatrical society view some of them with pleasure and some of them with distaste, uh, the grandfather's female impersonations on stage. Some people find this merely funny Uh, Some people adore it, but other people don't like it one bit. Um, Other people disapprove. Uh, Albeit silently, they disapprove. You know, one of the things I think that is so uh, enjoyable about this book is the way you immerse us in the perception of, I think, one of the most complicated characters that I've ever encountered in fiction. And... uh, what makes him complicated is essentially is his his bisexuality and you use this as a means of creating a page turning plot that turns not on actions but on emotions and understandings and character revelations which i think is makes this book particularly powerful and it's a very interesting way of plotting a novel i think you're right that um Billy is at least sexually challenging in in his complexity. But I also see him as having some pretty obvious ancestors in earlier novels of mine in the area of sexual outsiders or perceived uh, sexual misfits in their time and place. Garp's mother, Jenny Fields, in The World According to Garp, has sex once with a comatose man and is never inclined um, to repeat the activity. Dr. Larch, the ether-addicted abortionist in The Cider House Rules, also has sex once 
in his case with a prostitute. He gets the clap. He never has sex again. And Johnny Wheelwright, whom I mentioned earlier, that um, so-called non-practicing homosexual narrator of a prayer throw in Maine, Johnny never has sex at all with anyone. I suppose there's a part of me, a big part of me, that thinks that Billy Abbott, my bisexual man, is less of a radical than Jenny or Dr. Larch or Johnny Wheelwright in those earlier novels because it's far more imaginable to me to have sex with men and women than it would be to never have sex at all, <laughs> which um, I, I find quite a radical orientation. Um, so I, I'm, just, I'm just suggesting that, um, you know, uh, Billy Abbott knew, though he is, uh, complicated, as you say, he, you know, to me, he has this, he, he comes from ancestry in earlier novels who I find, at least in terms of his sexual life, stranger than he is. Um, I don't find Billy strange at all. I chose Billy because I wanted him to be a test of the reader's tolerance. I wanted to be able to say, oh, you, you think you're sexually tolerant, are you? Well, how about this? Are you tolerant of this? How about him? Are you tolerant of him? What about her? I'm, I'm just trying to push the envelope uh, a little bit. Um, I wasn't happy when I first thought about this novel, and it came to me pretty much fully formed as long as 10 or even 12 years ago. I thought, oh, not this again. I felt, uh, admittedly now, naively, when I finished The World According to Garp in 1978, I remember thinking, well, whatever you do next, you won't write about this again. This subject, namely, our intolerance of our sexual differences, this subject will surely disappear. It'll be gone. Uh, Garp will one day be seen as a kind of um, relic of extremism. Here's a guy who's killed by a woman who hates men, and his mother is murdered by a man who hates women. Well, nothing in, in one person is as radical as that. The humor isn't as broad. The satire isn't as omnipresent. In One Person is a more realistic novel, but... It's the same subject uh, as the world according to Garp. It is about our tolerance or lack thereof of our sexual differences. I'm afraid things may have improved in, in that area. We may be more enlightened in the area of accepting our sexual differences, of accepting sexual equality, Arguably, things are moving in the right direction, but we're not there. And if we were there, I wouldn't have written this novel, which, to repeat again, I, I was thinking of writing. It was a novel waiting to be written as long as 10, now almost 12 years ago, although I didn't start writing it until June of 2009. If it seems timely now, 
timely to be publishing a novel about intolerance of our sexual differences. Uh, no one should give me any credit for timeliness because, as I say, this novel's been in my head for a while, and it took me quite a while to write it. But if this subject appears timely, I think you have to blame the troglodytes in the Republican Party who are still opposed to marriage equality, usually hand-in-hand with being opposed to abortion rights and all the rest of it, the so-called social conservatives who are representatives of intolerance toward sexual differences. But don't pat me on the back for them. Well, I think what's so remarkable that I truly love about this book is the way that you managed to make Billy Abbott a, a he's a strong guy he he stands up for himself but he is genial he we like him he's fun he's occasionally funny but he's not uh, he's not a, a goofball i i like you to talk about finding this voice that is so engaging on an emotional level that's uh, that embraces the positive but engages with reality in a way that that matters to the reader. Well, that's 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 very uh, well observed and um and well put. It's important when you're making a a, a plea for tolerance. It doesn't it, feel like a plea. That's what makes this book work. I'm, I'm glad you say. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you say that, and I'm, I'm glad you, you like Billy uh, as a person, uh, as, as, as much as you say. I, I frankly was worried about that because um, I, I think um, Billy is a lot less angry about this subject, for example, than I am, and he's um, probably a lot more likable or personable about this subject than I am. And so I was aware in creating Billy of trying to solicit the reader's sympathy for Billy as a young person coming of age, as you said at the beginning. Uh, And so much of what we see of Billy is Billy as a young boy. And I think it's it's from those experiences, his adolescence, that we solidify our sympathy for him, which we carry with us, I hope, when we see Billy as a as a grown man. It's it's necessary is if you're going to like this novel, that you like. Billy, and I, I had to um, work hard at that, even to the extent that, at the very end of the novel, Billy finds himself in a situation where he is even pleading for sympathy for another character in the novel, who Billy personally has little reason to feel sympathy for someone who has tormented him and hurt him 
But um, Billy finds himself in the unlikely situation of asking for sympathy for this guy too when it's the character in the novel most of us would conclude uh, that uh, Billy would have every reason to have the least sympathy for. It's difficult to say this without giving the story away, but I'm trying not to give no, the I'd, story away. But I you, don't want to give the story I, away. I know you know by the, your expression what I'm talking about. But that was the test for me to sort of set up a situation where Billy is going to find himself in making a case for sympathy, even for uh, this guy who was not nice to him. This book has a fabulous cast of characters that we get to know very well. And what I find so interesting when I when I was reading this book is we're introduced to somebody and at first we don't know how big a part this person's going to play. And then they will just blossom forth into the narrative and become integral and some of them will kind of stay at a at a thin root like level, but yet those roots are strong and will last through the entire novel. And I'd like you to talk about uh, just in, on ter- sheer terms of crafting this novel, getting all this into your head, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this novel. Uh, how much of this just flowed from the tip of your pen and how much of this is on spreadsheets or giant graphs that surround your office walls? I don't use spreadsheets or giant graphs, just kind of old-fashioned lined and unlined notebooks where I take a lot of notes before I begin to write a novel. Uh, With this novel, as with the previous 12, uh, I've always begun with an ending. I know what the ending is, the actual sentences, the actual last couple of paragraphs, sometimes the last couple of pages. I'm writing toward a predetermined ending, which I know and which doesn't change. And by the time I begin writing the novel, by the time I write the first sentence of the first chapter, there is in my mind and in these notebooks um, a pretty complete roadmap of who the characters are and when their paths cross and when they cross again, who lives, who dies, dies how. I know what happens. I don't begin writing a novel until I pretty much know everything, everything of importance, and I, I wouldn't, frankly, plot being the engine that has always driven my interest in storytelling. I wouldn't know how to uh, put so much foreshadowing into a novel and keep alive those threads you mentioned uh, if I didn't know ahead of time uh, where I was going. It's not on the tip of my pen. It's predecided. It's prearranged. For me, that's what a plot is. I know it before I start. I know what I want to tell the reader or allow the reader to anticipate, and I know what I want to hide from the reader and let the reader experience as a surprise. But in this novel, I think in every novel of mine, the big thing that's coming... The big thing that's ahead of you in the story, uh, 
is something I never hide. Uh, you always, you the reader, uh, see it coming. In a prayer for Owen Meany, you know Owen Meany is already dead uh, when you've read the first sentence. You just don't know how or when he's going to die. You know you are listening to a best friend recollecting uh, his experiences with someone who is now lost to his life. You know that. It's, it's not a secret. Uh, in Last Night in Twisted River, when the father and son run away, you know they're going to be caught. From the moment they run, of course they'll be caught. You know that too. In the Cider House Rules, this boy who's born in the orphanage, Homer Wells, he's got every good reason to want nothing to do with abortion. The only thing his mother gave him was his life. That's it. Why would he be interested in this procedure? Uh huh, but he knows how to do it. He's been trained. He has perfect obstetrical and gynecological procedure. He is an abortionist waiting to happen. You know that too. And in this novel, come on, you're listening to the confessions, uh, the first person story of a bisexual guy. You know he's almost 70. Uh, you know that in the beginning of the first chapter, and you know the story begins in the 50s and the 60s. What's coming? Well, AIDS is coming. An AIDS epidemic is coming. And you know that many of the characters you're meeting, his friends and lovers, are not going to come out the other side of that epidemic. You just don't know who. You don't know who you're going to find again when AIDS comes to the story. But there's no question but that it's coming. That's the cloud on this horizon. What I'm saying is, these are all collision course novels. And I don't conceal what the collision in waiting is. In fact, I take every pain to allow you to anticipate that uh, collision. And... Again, you, I don't think you can do that, or at least I don't know how to do that as a storyteller. If I, if I don't know pretty much everything about where I'm going before I start, I have to know those things. That is the craft of a novel in which plot is the engine driving the story. Plot was what made me want to become a writer. Yes, when I first read those plotted novels of the 19th century, those character-driven, plotted stories in which the passage of time was usually integral to the story itself, Dickens, Hardy, Hawthorne, Melville. But before them, like Billy, growing up backstage in a theater, I saw a plot there, in plays I saw, before I was old enough to read those novels. Sophocles has a plot. Shakespeare has a plot. Plot pre-exists the novel by several centuries. And it was always what interested me about the story. You include a, a lot of books within books, stories within stories. You talk a lot about the importance of reading in this book. Uh, one of the first big events in this book, it practically opens with, the, uh, with Billy rereading uh, great expectations. And, and I think that it's so interesting that we as readers are and ourselves engaged 
in the act of reading and creating this world for ourselves, and we're watching someone else engage in reading and create the world for themselves, engage in the plays and and create the world for others. There's a lot of um, wonderful feeling that um, when we are picking up a book, what we're mostly really picking up is about, in this case, 439 pages of mirrors. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, it's always surprised me a little bit that I I don't hear more writers talk about or write about the books they've read or the plays they saw that made them want to do this thing in the first place. If if I hadn't been a reader, if I hadn't been in the audience of so many theatrical productions, I don't know that I would have become a writer. I think wanting to become a writer is directly attributable to the plays I saw when I was a child and the novels uh, I read, those 19th century novels, when I was a, a teenager. That's what did it for me. Those are the things that made me want to be uh, who I am. I, I didn't get it from television and the movies. It came from the theater. It, it came from novels. Uh, the desire not just to be a novelist, but to be a novelist like that, like one of those 19th century novelists. It, it seems to me a kind of obvious homage or lineage Maybe in, in the long run it was easy for me or easier for me than for a lot of uh, writers in that the people, the playwrights, the novelists I sought most consciously to imitate were so long dead, so not of my time and place, uh, that I was never uh, in any danger of sounding imitative or uh, seeming to have imitating, uh, to be imitating them, though I very consciously was. I couldn't have sounded like Thomas Hardy or Charles Dickens, uh, no matter how hard I tried. I came from a different era. I spoke a different language. I couldn't sound like Shakespeare or Sophocles, although these these were models of the form for me. So I, I think uh, it, was, it was kind of lucky for me in a way that um, uh, I was attracted to these things that were already, when I was a teenager, kind of not fashionable or, or not of the time I was growing up in. And when I wrote my first novel in the late 60s, I remember feeling that I was kind of already an extinct species of writer, believing so firmly as I did in the 19th century novel and uh, the engine which a plot is in storytelling. I don't feel that way so much anymore. It's just what I do. But um, uh, as a young writer, I thought, Gee, I, I, there must be something wrong with me that everything I like is is already old. 
and the fashionable taste of the time in literature has moved on to much more modern or postmodern, there is a word I hate, uh, things. Well, I wouldn't say old. I would say timeless. Thank you. That's what matters to me. I mean, you people will always want to read stories about people because we are stories. I mean, if I ask you about John Irving, you're going to tell me a story. And that's what that's the pure pleasure of books like this. This is somebody I, it's as if I met walked up to Billy Abbott at the age of 70 said, "Billy, tell, tell me a little bit about yourself." And He's an engaging conversationalist and a hell of a storyteller. Well, that first person narrator, he's a kind of um he is a kind of soliloquist, he's a kind of monologist. How albeit reluctantly, once I accept telling a story in that first person voice, I am aware that the book I'm writing is more quickly forthcoming in the process. I guess because in that voice as a first-person narrator, you become one of the actors on stage. You are one of the players. And so there's never any hesitation about how you sound and what your voice should be because the answer is sounding character. Be who you are. And if you know the character you are, like an actor, well, you should know how to sound. That third-person omniscient voice, so-called omniscient voice... It, it, it develops more slowly. Hmm. Um, there's more caution in uh, monitoring what that voice should be, what its tone should be. You're supposed to be all-knowing. You're supposed to be detached. You're supposed to be above it all. Whereas that that first-person narrator, that that character is in the thick of it. Uh, that character isn't being careful about what he or she says. That character is simply being in character. You're simply sounding like the person you are. And, and that's really necessary for a novel like this that's so frankly sexual and to a degree... Um, you know, transgressive. I don't actually, you know, I've heard this novel described thusly. I do not, did not find it that. I found that the the way you managed to have Billy describe all the sex and the way you wrote about it, I found it seemed very natural and entertaining and it was neither titillating nor upsetting. It seemed like a natural part of what he would do, given how complicated the guy is. He's attracted uh, to men and women. And I, that's... I hope that's true. You know, I, that's, a, that's a good reaction to me. Um, I, I certainly tried to make um, a, a Billy um, uh, sound uh, natural, to use your word, in every respect. It is all natural to him. It's, it's how he feels. First paragraph, first chapter, he says, we are formed by what we desire, period. Yes, we are. You, you've mentioned uh, the theater a couple times, and, and I have to say that that was one of the aspects of this book I really enjoyed was the importance and the integration of 
uh, theater into small town life. We have one where I live, a, a little small town theater, and it's kind of there's a family that's been kind of doing, you know, the the father was in it, and now the sons and the grandsons are in it, and I I really like that sense of uh, a through line in the arts as being part of the community and the the way the lives of the people who participate in the theater are reflected in the plays. Well, I I always like the the artifice, the 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 structure of stories within stories of of tales within a tale. I've just always liked that. It's it can be playful. Uh, it can be serious. It can go back and forth between uh, the two. You can reflect in the performances of other plays, in the telling of stories within stories. You can reflect, of course, parallels to the main story or the overall story you're telling. Uh, in this case, I was able to cast people in various roles in character and also uh, to miscast them, uh, to make them uh, uh, stand out um, as, as, as being cast woefully out of character. There's a kind of playfulness to that, the manipulability of a story within a story that I've um, always uh, enjoyed. It, um, there's a lot of that in Shakespeare, of course. There's a lot of it in Dickens. And uh, there's very much a lot of it uh, in, in this book. You know... Uh, several well-meaning editors among my uh, publishers uh, told me uh, that I was uh, taking this too far and doing too much of uh, the plays, too much uh, story within story. What can I say? I mean, uh, I've often heard from uh, editorial advice along the lines of doing too much of something I enjoy. When you're enjoying it, we as readers are enjoying it. I uh, thank you. I <laughs> hope so. You know that's that certainly is my uh, intention is is not to digress in a way that truly uh, looks like a digression or um, um, to go on and on about something I love to the point of tedium or or boredom. But you know, on the other hand, you can't. Um, uh, express in every case how much you love something uh, without writing about it in detail. I learned detail from those 19th century novels, too. This novel is not just one, but many love stories and, and many arcs within love stories. And uh, as a as a series of love stories, really, that are kind of like uh, interlocked. It's like a chain, I think, more than a, a big arc, although the, the big arc is that I think by the end of this, the, the reader of any sex is going to be in love with, with Billy because he's such a, a, he's a, he's a genuinely nice guy. But I'd like you to talk about crafting these kind of, this is a love story of every genre and type. I mean, that's, in a sense, it's almost like a a short story collection in, encompassing all forms of love story? Well, it seemed inevitable to me 
that Billy would retain a certain solitariness because of his sexual identity or as one aspect of that identity. But at the same time, he makes a lot of friends, mm. uh, real friends, true friends, some of them like Larry, uh, friends who were former lovers, some of them like I Elaine, uh, people who will always be in the best friend category, even though the lover part of their relationship um, uh, doesn't really uh, work out. I tried to be as honest about that as I could be, that um, uh, Billy is someone who is sexually at ease in a number of relationships, but he reflects, I think, uh, a man of his generation, a part of his sexual liberation is also a liberation from monogamy. The idea of monogamy doesn't sit any more comfortably with Billy than the idea of either an exclusively homosexual or an exclusively heterosexual relationship. He puts it one point, he says, that somebody realizes that no one person could ever satisfy him. That's quite true. Um, that, of course, afforded me to the opportunity, which I do several times in this book, to, to play on the in-one-person uh, title. But that is what he concludes rather late in the novel. Uh, he uh, possesses the knowledge that um, no one person, as he puts it, could ever rescue him from wanting uh, to have sex with men and women. He's not complaining, nor is he bragging. He's just saying, this is how it is. Uh, and I think, in his case, it's a true conclusion. Uh, I think what thing makes this novel qu quite powerful is the, the balance, and you spoke of this a little bit earlier, between how much information we get, how much of the novel takes place in his adolescence, and then what happens afterwards, and in particularly during when the AIDS epidemic strikes. In, uh, because by then, to a degree, uh, it's the title of the chapter is A World of Epilogues. And to a degree, the story's over and everything else is, is epilogue after that. Well, any disaster that claims a lot of lives is is going to have the effect of an epilogue on a lot of people, uh, namely the survivors. And any time you survive something that, by all rights, you, you easily might not have survived, there's a certain amount of guilt that needs to be reflected. I tried to reflect that truthfully in a prayer for Owen Meany about the guilt of the Vietnam years among those of us who escaped for one reason or another going to that war, or even, in my case, escaped the decision, the need to make uh, the decision of whether uh, to go or not. And um, 
I tried to reflect that as well in the case of the AIDS epidemic in in this novel. I think with every book I write, there's always a part of it that I'm not only not looking forward to writing, but I'm dreading writing. There's a part of it I I don't want to see, not to mention write about. But I think if if there wasn't such a part in every novel of mine, something I'm dreading, I'm not sure I would care enough about the story to want to write it in the first place. Melville always said to young writers, woe to him who seeks to please rather than appall. And I, I took that to mean that there ought to be something you're afraid of in every novel you write. There is in in every novel of mine something that frightens me, something I hope never happens to me or to anyone I love. And without that element, how can you expect your readers to be moved if there isn't something integral to the story that just absolutely terrifies uh, you, the very idea of it happening uh, to anyone you care anything about. I was living in New York uh, when the AIDS epidemic uh, started. Uh, yes, I lost uh, friends, as, as most of us did, and this novel is, is um, in part dedicated uh, uh, to one of them, the director, uh, Tony Richardson. Uh, Tony died of AIDS in the early 90s in Los Angeles. But I also tried to reflect in Billy's guilt, namely that he's not sick, that he doesn't have it, and the feeling that uh, uh, the sheer luck, the sheer coincidence of him not having it when so many people he knows uh, are dying. Well, I had some of those same feelings. I not only was afraid for those friends of mine who I knew were gay, I was not only afraid for them and anxious about them uh, dying, but like a lot of straight guys who had gay friends of my generation, what you also were discovering were those friends you had that you didn't even know were gay until they were dying. And that came with a double sense of guilt. I used to think in those cases, what was it about me? What signal did I send to those friends to whom I thought I was very close? What, what made them think I might not have been a safe person uh, to talk to uh, about who they were sexually? I tried to reflect that uh, a little bit in this novel as well. Billy has no idea, for example, that Delacorte is gay until Delacorte is dying. There had to be at least one character like Delacorte in uh, this novel just to be truthful to how things were, to how things happened. 
in hearing this story and ex- and experiencing this story as a reader, we become Billy. We're there with him through all these things. But then we get to close the book and come back, and then those things become like memories. And I think that that's what's most interesting for me is that in a book like this, you can go back and visit the characters and visit certain scenes as if that you've lived them yourself as a, as as memories. And I'd like you to talk about mingling your own memories as you've just described while you're writing to create memories for your readers. Well, what I've learned about relying on my own memory is is how unreliable it is. I actually make more mistakes in my novels in those areas in which I have first-hand experience and confidently believe that my memory is my guide, that I am writing from so-called personal experience. Therefore, how could I possibly get it wrong? I have always, in my fiction, made more mistakes in those areas of personal experience, so to speak, uh, than I generally make in those parts of my novels where I've had to rely on teaching myself about a subject that I know nothing about or knew nothing about heretofore. When I have made myself a student of a subject where I recognize myself as a neophyte, as a novitiate, I am inclined to be more accurate and do a better job than when I oh so confidently, oh too confidently, it often turns out, say, well, I don't need to do any research on this subject. I was there. I saw him die. I saw her die. I, The best example I can give you of a novel of that kind is The Cider House Rules, where there is a tremendous amount of uh, research in the area of obstetrical and gynecological medicine at a period of time, the 1930s and early 40s, before I was born. So I, I did have to make myself a, a, a student. I spent a lot of time in the Yale Medical Historical Library. I spent a lot of time in conversation with uh, older OBGYNs and asked them to be um, so-called expert readers of that manuscript, much to my surprise and theirs. I made very few mistakes of an OBGYN kind, one I now can't remember about an episiotomy, probably running the wrong way. I can't really recall. But it was it was a small mistake, not if I'd been a surgeon, but um, in the novel it was uh, easily correctable. On the other hand, growing up in southern New Hampshire and working for many summers as I did in the apple farms, I made half a dozen mistakes about apple farming because I thought, oh, I know everything about apples. I've worked in the orchards. I don't have to ask anybody about this. But fortunately, at the last minute, I had a friend who was uh, in the business, and I asked him to read the manuscript. And much to my surprise, um, I was wrong about half a dozen things. So it was a good lesson to me. I learned that um, don't necessarily trust your your so-called personal experiences or your personal memories to be um, accurate find somebody who knows a little bit more about something, even something you think you know something about. Uh, Find somebody ahead of time who's going to be a willing reader of that manuscript 
who can kind of look over your shoulder and say, uh, actually, no, this isn't what happened. That may be what you think you saw, but that isn't what you saw. It's, it's often a surprise to me how wrong I am in recollecting a personal experience and, uh, concurrently, how uh, accurate I've been about something that, until I started writing the book, I knew absolutely nothing about. In this book's case, there was very little research or being a student involved. Uh, from the moment I thought of this novel uh, in toto and decided that it was the next one, I didn't have to do any roadwork, so to speak, to learn something that I had not seen firsthand. But as with any novel of mine, uh, there were a list of important readers of this manuscript. You know, when you know you've got somebody who's going to read that first draft uh, over your shoulder, so to speak, when you know you've got such a reader, such a friend lined up, it gives you a lot of confidence uh, about how you write because you think, oh, well, if I, um, if I mess this up, so-and-so is going to be all over it. So-and-so will say, no, 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 you, no, you idiot. Um, it's, it's not H, it's uh, P um, or whatever. What are you working on now or next? Well, I, I don't like to say too much about what I'm working on now, but I began a new novel on uh, Christmas Eve where I always begin a new novel at the ending. So uh, there were probably three or four novels I was considering as the next one. Uh, and on Christmas Eve, I made the decision regarding which of those next ones the actual next one would be. And I made it as I always make it on the evidence of how rock solid and, and dead certain I was about the ending, what it is, the actual uh, last sentence, uh, and so forth. So I should say, when I say I began a new novel on Christmas Eve, what I really mean is um, I wrote that last uh, sentence on Christmas Eve, and so I've um, uh, begun a book in the place I always um, begin a book. And I, and since that time, I've written a, a couple of hundred, well, that is, in longhand, a couple of hundred uh, pages of that new book, though I confess, beginning in uh, February sometime, the pre-publication interviews about In One Person have uh, pretty much... Um, taken my time to write that new book away. We'll look forward to your returning to it. I've been speaking with John Irving. His new book is In One Person. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.